Here's the word of the Lord from James 1, 19 through 25. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is a light to us. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, several, several years ago, I was at a Sarah Groves concert. Sarah Groves is a Christian singer-songwriter, mostly popular in the middle-aged Christian mom crowd, but there are outliers. And she was uh, touring with IJM, which is a, a Christian organization that works to eradicate modern slavery and, and bring modern slave owners to justice. And she was sharing a story before one of her songs about how she got to be involved with IJM in the first place. And this story has stuck with me. She's talking about how she had recently met some, um, some Christian women in her small group who were really actively engaged with IJM. You know, they were going on trips, they were fundraising, they were out in their communities and their churches raising awareness, just really going for it. And Sarah said, you know, she felt like her faith was exercised mainly in terms of going to Bible studies and reading Christian books. And she saw her car or her faith as this car that sat in her garage that she would wax and upgrade and fine tune, whereas these women were treating their faith like you know, they were taking them out and doing like wheelies and donuts and going on high-speed chases, like actually using and exercising their faith. And her point was that their faith was an active one, whereas hers was mostly decorative. And it really shook her and, and made her realize that what the point of all of her attention to the word is, is that she would actually do something with it. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you know like, the inner workings of the engine of Christianity, so to speak. You know, you know your Bible. You know your theology, theology. You even maybe know some church history. But you almost never really get behind the wheel and, and take your faith out for a spin. It feels a little foreign to you, maybe. Maybe your relationship with this book and the God that it reveals is, is stale. It's kind of all up here and not really down here or out in your life. Or maybe your relationship with this book is purely ritualistic. You, you come to church or you watch online mostly as a, as a habit, or maybe it's because it's what your family does, but uh, you're, you're kind of tuned out. I suspect that all of us fall somewhere in that spectrum. And what that means is that all of us need to take a second look at our relationship 
with the word. And that's what our text is all about today. James's concern is that we have a right relationship with God's word, a right, authentic relationship with God's word. And so today we're going to answer four questions for a right relationship with God's word. First, what is the word? Like, what word are we talking about? Second, with what posture do I receive the word? Third, how do I know if I've received the word? And fourth, what should I expect of the word? Again, four questions for a right relationship with God's word. And I'm framing them as I questions because I think often there's a temptation for us to listen to a sermon and not really assess ourselves honestly. And if there was ever a text where it is time for us to take a good, honest look at ourselves, it's this one. So I would encourage you, this is not a sermon for someone else. This is a sermon for you. This is a sermon for me to really assess ourselves. What is the word? With what posture do I receive the word? How do I know if I've received the word? And finally, what can I expect of the word? Let's start with the first one. What is the word? What word specifically are we, is James talking about here? We need to know if we're going to have a right relationship with him, with it. Well, we get our first clue from the passage itself. Look down at verse 21 with me. It says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So whatever this word is, it is able to save our souls. So right out of the gates, my first hunch is that this is just the message of the gospel primarily. You know, forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Jesus Christ. But we can read a bit backward and a bit forward to test, to make sure that we have the, we have the right understanding of what we're dealing with here. If you look at verse 18, it says, "...of his, that is God's own will." He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Okay, so most certainly, then, this is the word of the gospel. I mean, firstfruits, this is new creation language, it has to be the gospel. But if you keep reading through our passage to the end of our passage, in verse 25, we see that the implanted word is equated with the phrase, the perfect law, the law of liberty. And so which is it? Is it the law or is it the gospel? You might know where I'm going with this. It's both. We are often tempted to simplify law and gospel as law, bad, gospel, good. But the scriptures do not do this. What the scriptures teach us is that actually Jesus came to fulfill the law and in doing so enfold the law into the good news of the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes, to, goes on to preach a sermon about what it looks like to follow the law. And it looks like following him. In fact, he says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So rather than law bad, gospel good, what we actually see is law good but condemning, gospel perfect because it condemns the curse of the law, which is sin and death, because Jesus has taken care 
of sin and death. And so the reason James here calls it the perfect law, the law of liberty, is because the law no longer hangs over us like a curse, but rather like a guiding light that moves us forward and helps us to have right, joyful, or to to live uh, rightly and with joy. It has become perfect because Christ has perfected it by fulfilling it. So returning to our question, what is this word? It is the message of Christ in the person of Christ, embodied in the very person of Christ. There is an intrinsic connection between Jesus and his word. You know, it's like if, if as a child, my parents told me to clean my room and I didn't clean the, my room and they, they came and they said, Matt, you disobeyed us. And I were to say, no, I didn't disobey you. I disobeyed your word. We know that that's nonsensical. There is, our words are an extension of our person. Well, it's the same way with Jesus. So when we hear, read word, we should, we really ought to read it with it. almost like a capital W. It's not less than Jesus commands, but it is certainly more. It is Jesus himself, the person. It is the whole message of the gospel, including the way of the gospel, the life that flows out of the gospel. Jesus says it best himself. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Do you see that dynamic personal quality of Jesus's words? So let me pause here and ask, what do you make of this book? Do you see in its pages just a bunch of rules and ideas and concepts? Or do you see a person here? Does this book mediate the living Savior to you? If it doesn't, ask God to open your eyes to show you what, who you are meeting in this text. Well, perhaps you want this living, active, personal relationship with the Word of God and the person of God. How do, have, how do you have that? Well, that brings us to question number two. With what posture do I receive the Word? With what posture do I receive the Word? Our answer is in the first paragraph of our passage, and it has to do with anger and meekness. But a couple comments before we read the the paragraph and and get more into this question. You know, maybe it's because I've been mulling over this passage over the last few weeks as I've prepared for the sermon, but I, I just keep thinking of these verses when I encounter the vitriol in our national discourse and in our social media. Um... There is a lot of anger, and I'm not talking about good, righteous anger, because if you're paying attention, there's a lot to be righteously angry about. I'm talking about a different kind of anger. I'm talking about the personal anger that we have at one another, where everyone is shouting and no one is listening. There is great wisdom in this paragraph for how to have fruitful conversation And that's actually what this whole paragraph is about, how to have a fruitful conversation with the most important voice of all, God's voice, God's word. But we also get a freebie in this passage because it also teaches us how to have fruitful conversations with one another. 
with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, with your crazy liberal friend or your crazy conservative friend or your mailman or whoever you might want to be mad at, this paragraph offers you a word of wisdom for how to have meaningful conversation. But again, we're focusing on the relationship at hand, which is your relationship with the word. So what posture toward the word produces the righteousness of God? That's what the question That's the question for our paragraph right now. And here it is. The posture that produces the righteousness of God toward the word is meekness. Let's read the whole paragraph. It says, know this, my beloved brothers. So here's a tender, pastoral, loving word for each of us. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. I want to draw out one image with two implications from this paragraph, getting at the question, how do we have a relationship with God's word that produces righteousness? The image is that of a seed. If you look at verse 21, you see the phrase implanted word. So that's that seed imagery. We're, we're thinking about sowing something here. And, and the seed is we want to see this seed go into the ground and bear fruit, specifically the righteousness of God. And the first implication then of this image is that we need to clear out the soil for this seed. Specifically, we need to remove anger, filthiness, and rampant wickedness. You know, when I first started studying this passage, one of the first questions that I asked of of these verses is, uh, what is the connection between anger and receiving the word? James wants me to receive the implanted word, and he calls out anger as the culprit that would impede me receiving the word truly. Why is that? Well, my initial thought is that when you're angry, you are your own word. You're not listening to another word. You're hearing just your own. And I share this with the pastors. And Jonathan pointed out that when you are angry, exactly that, you don't listen. So it's actually this double assault anger is, a double assault on listening. Not only are your ears and your heart totally hardened, but also you're already infested with your own word. You are like a garden bed entirely full of weeds. And so that's why James is targeting anger. You know what a great example of being your own word in anger is? Is a shower rant. I don't know if there's a technical term, but I'm calling it a shower rant. And it's when you're in the shower and you start getting thinking about something that bothers you and, and you are basically ranting silently to yourself about whatever it is you know i don't know if it's that showers are hot and so your emotions get hot and it's just everything starts fuming well all of a sudden you're you're crafting like the most ultimate takedown of of someone or some idea that you don't like or you're just mad and you're fuming and you're just adding more fuel to the fire and you get out of the shower and you are like 10 times angrier going getting out than you were going in what is happening in a shower rant It's pride. It is pride at work. 
it is, a, it is the, the weed of pride sprouting more weeds and more weeds and more weeds, and it looks like anger. Anger is a secondary emotion. Anger always comes from something else. And that the kind of anger James is talking about here is the anger that comes from pride. And when we are in a place of anger, we do not listen. We are like a flower bed that is so full of weeds that we don't have even a little bit of room for a tiny seed to come in and make a home there and sprout into something beautiful. So I'd ask you, are you there right now? Are you in a place of anger? And I'll confess that I am. I just used the illustration of shower rants because I've been having them. I have been having shower rants over the last couple weeks, even a couple months. And quite frankly, this text convicts me. I know from the way that I've spoken to people that I dearly love in the last several weeks that I have a lot of anger and filthiness to put away, as James says. I've got a lot of clearing to do. But I ask you, what about yourself? Who is the wise sage in your thought life? Is it always you? That might be a sign of pride. Does everyone need to quiet their mouths and listen to you? That might be a sign of pride. Meekness, on the other hand, is quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And it's how we receive the word. And I would say, if you, want to want, if you want to know if you have a posture of anger that's keeping you from hearing God's word, I think you can take a clue by the way your willingness to hear other people's word too. Again, I don't think the main point of this passage is to have healthy conversations with one another, but I think it reveals a symptom. Anger is a symptom of pride, and pride is an impossible posture toward receiving God's word. So instead, the call here is to meekness. And why? Why meekness? Jesus says, "Blessed are the weak, for they will or the meek, for they will inherit the earth." And that is because they make room for the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. This is the logic of the parable of the sower. You might be familiar with it. It goes like this. This is Jesus speaking. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as, as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And then just a bit later, Jesus, quoting Isaiah, basically interprets the parable for his listeners. He says, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus is drawing a connection between hearing and turning, and it's impossible to do with a calloused heart. 
We need the power of God to come in like a rototiller and prepare our hearts for his word. So I'd ask each of us to be honest with ourselves. Is our anger working? Is it producing anything good? It certainly can't produce the righteousness of God, and that's what we're after. So I would ask you to confess and repent with me of anger and pride and filthiness and rampant wickedness in your heart. Ask God to come in with power and break up the hard soil of your heart and clear it out and put in a new word and make you a person of meekness. Well, as Jesus makes clear, the point of a seed is to sprout. Which brings us to our next question. How do we know if we have received the word? How do we know if the seed has come in and found good soil and is going to bear fruit? How do we know? This is actually, I think, James's greatest concern in the passage. So far, I think he's just kind of been warming up to this, this main point of his, of how, how we know that we have received the word. And it's very simple. The answer is, you do it. How do you know if you've received the word? You do it. Look at verse 22. It says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So these last two words are very sobering. If I had to select the two scariest words in this passage, it would be these two. Deceiving yourselves. What? Deceiving myself of what? It's about whether you have received the word. The scriptures are exceedingly clear on this point. And James himself says it just later on in this, in this letter, faith without works is dead. I've heard it said, works do not save you, but saving faith works. That is, if you have truly received the gospel, it is going to bear fruit. And that fruit looks like you doing God's word. This is the whole point of the parable of the sower that we just read. Not all who receive the word truly receive it. It's those who bear fruit who have received it. Now, there are two ways that you could take James's warning here. Either as something that scares you or something that saves you. Now, what do I mean? What I mean is this. James says what he says not to leave you anxious about whether you have received the word or not, but rather to make, you, make sure you know what it is to receive the word so that you will receive it. His interest here is that you know what it looks like to have been someone who receives the word. And he turns, to, to help you with this, he turns to the image of a metaphor. He says, or to the image of a mirror. Look with me at verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. One commentator notes that um, the mirror is a common metaphor in ancient literature for moral development. So when James uses this metaphor, the audience knows, okay, he's talking about moral change. And he goes on, this commentator goes on to say um, basically the import of, of this analogy, and I'm going to read it. 
There is a double mistake implied here by the believer who does not act upon the word. First, the word is being treated like a mere vision, a theory, in the sense of a detached mental image with no connection to the external word, world. The word is like, a, is, is like a theory, but it is a practical one that both reflects reality, that is the natural, natural face, and directs the beholder to act in a certain way. The second mistake we make regarding the word is to ignore its message once it is received. The mere glancing at the word without corrective action is of little use. So James' basic point here is that the point of a mirror is to use it, which seems really simple. The point of a mirror is to use it. Why do we look in a mirror? Let's take, for example, um, the idea of a, of a bride preparing for her uh, on her wedding day. You know, a bride looks at a mirror quite a bit on her wedding day. A groom really ought to look more. But, you know, bride, you can take care of a cowlick or maybe take care of some eyebrow business. But a bride is looking at the mirror quite a bit. You know, maybe in the morning she wakes up and she looks at the mirror just to, like, to celebrate. Like, today's the day I'm getting married. And maybe later that morning she's at the hair salon and she's talking with a hairdresser about, you know, let's pin this here. Or let's curl this. Or, you know, I am obviously out of my element talking about uh, hairstyling. Uh, maybe later on she's looking at the mirror, she's putting her, putting her dress on and making sure it's fitting properly, or she's doing her makeup and she's, you know, touching up or putting up, again, I'm out of my element, but she's looking at the mirror often on this day to what? To present herself in the most beautiful way she can, to change her appearance and present herself to her groom. In this case, the mirror was never decorative. It was useful. It was a tool for change. Friends, this is the only true relationship with the word. It is not just one we should have. It is the only true one we can have. If we don't have this kind of relationship with the word, one that changes us, we do not have any relationship with the word. Do not be deceived. Be a doer of the word. And this has to be the case because of the nature of the word. If we know what this is, it's impossible for us to treat it like something that we can just muse over. Scripture says that the word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Later, a different passage says the word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The point of the word is that you do something with the word. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a quote where he says, to deal with the word of Jesus otherwise than by doing it is to give him the lie. Such a word would not be Christ's, but a word we had wrested from him and made our own by reflecting on it instead of doing it. How could, we, how could we possibly meet something as living and active and profitable for teaching and correction and righteousness with inaction? There's only one way that we could meet a book like that or a word like that, and it would be that we don't actually meet it, that we don't actually receive it.
growing up in, uh, in my parents' den, my, my dad had this plaque on the wall with a little gavel on it that he had been um, given as, uh, to commemorate his time serving as a mayor of this tiny, tiny town in Alaska called Chicknick. And my dad became the mayor of that town because he wasn't in the room when the people were doing the paperwork and they needed to make somebody the mayor. And so they just put his name on, on, the, on the sheet of paper. And I asked him recently if he really ever executed any mayoral duties or if it was kind of just, you know, not for show, but just for, you know, practical purposes. And he said no, because there was really not much for him to do. So in short, it was all paperwork. So that gavel on that plot, on that plaque was merely decorative. There's no, there's no story of action behind it. And I would ask us, is our Bible basically decorative to us? Is it merely paperwork? Like theory or music or art that we muse over, but we don't actually do. The point of a gavel is that you rule with it. The point of a sword is that you fight with it. The point of a seed is that you plant it. The point of a mirror is that you look at it and change. The point of the word is that you do it and that it produces the righteousness of God in your life. Perhaps you feel a little bit burdened by this. You think, I, I want this kind of relationship with the word. You are describing the exact frustration that I have and the exact anxiety that I often feel because I don't think I do the word enough. And I wonder if I'm actually saved, what do I do? How do I have this living, active relationship with the word? And that brings us to our last question. What can I expect of the word? How can the word help me be a doer of the word? Well, I would simply point to the two images of the text, the seed and the mirror. The power to produce the righteousness of God does not come from you, but from the seed. And who sows that seed? It says in James 1.18, God himself sows it by his own will. And what does that seed do? It saves your soul. And who tends the plant? God does. God is our vine dresser and he prunes us that we might bear more fruit. And whose fruit is that? It's the fruit of the spirit. It is not the fruit of human effort. It is the fruit of the spirit. It is the spirit of Christ in you bearing his own person and character. You cannot generate the righteousness of God. The word itself in you will bear fruit. And for the mirror, know that when you look in the mirror, you can expect to see two things. At once, you'll see your blemishes and you'll see Christ's perfection. The mirror is a law of liberty, of liberty because it reveals that God does not see you as you are, but as Christ is. And that you are not who you are, but you are who Christ is, and you are growing into who Christ is, and you will become as Christ is. Who I am now, I will not always be by the mercy of Christ. The same mirror that reveals your sin reveals your sinless Savior, that He has transformed the law 
from a curse into a blessing, into freedom. And one of the great surprises of the gospel is that we are remarkably passive in reaping its benefits. We really have one work when it all boils down to it, and that is to receive the grace of Christ. Receive the word and behold the one whom the word reveals. You will act, but you will act because God will have acted on you in the gospel of Christ. So there are really two dangers here. One is to receive the word without doing. The other is to try and do the word without receiving. We must receive the word because those other alternatives are empty. Instead, receive the word with meekness and then do it. Keep looking at it. Keep meditating on it. Keep meeting Christ in the sacrament, in his people, in his word. The word of Christ is powerful to save you and to move you because it is the word of Christ. And you will be blessed in your doing because you will be following the one who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us to be not only hearers of the word, but doers. I pray that we would be great at both. I pray that we would be those who hear the word with meekness and humility and an internal desire to submit to it. And I pray that we would have zeal to do it and that we would always be turning ourselves over to your power to transform us and to change us, Lord. Let us not be deceived, but also let us not be those who try and do your word without the power of your word and your spirit. Help us to be a gospel people. In your son's name I pray, amen.